Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We conclude our series called Hell Explained with a message entitled Hell and the Goodness of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Perhaps if you've been listening to this series on hell, you're shocked. Up until now, you've heard about hell a bit like the story I'm about to tell. That's because most of the present-day stories about hell, well, they sound a little like this one. Imagine a young man wooing a young woman. She's not sure about him, and eventually, she decides she's not interested. And because the young man is a gentleman, he allows the young woman to go her own way, leaving her choose her own path. This is like God, we're often told. He's wooing us, telling us more than the analogy of the young man. He, he's telling his creation that we were made for him. But so many resist, and because God is a gentleman, he allows us to go our own way. He's sad about it, but he respects the integrity of our choices. Hell in this scenario is not a place of torment. It's a place where we never enter into the joy of knowing our Creator. It is God saying, if you want to live without me, I'll let you do that, for I'm a gentleman. You know, for many of us, this is the conception of hell that we have been taught. And so when we actually begin to read the scripture itself, we soon see that this typical modern-day picture of hell, well, it's simply inaccurate. Listen again to Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, which speaks to the one who is the subject of hell. It speaks of the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he, that is the person going to hell, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Today I'm going to be doing two things. First, we will describe the experience of hell from the perspective of the one who has gone there. Now, you're going to remember we have up to this moment described hell itself, but we have not described the experience of being in hell. And so that's first. And then second, we will pull this series together and answer the apologetic question, which is, how can such a thing be possible? This is the question whether or not the God of the Bible is a sadistic torturer. But we'll get to that last of all. And so let's begin by describing hell from the perspective of the person who's actually there. And so from this perspective, we will observe three things about hell. First, hell is loss. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 13, verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And so it's clear that the people in hell are quite aware of the reward and joy that they might have had, but has now been forbidden of them forever. Now, they might not fully comprehend what they are missing, but they do have a good idea that there are those filled with joy for all of eternity, but they have been eternally locked out. But it's not just that the people of hell are aware of what they might have had, they're also aware of what they once had and what they have now lost. Listen to Psalm 49, verses 16 to 19. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will go down after him. 
For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. So consider what's lost in hell. Physical wealth is lost. If you're wealthy and own your own business, have houses, cars, airplanes, anything else that you physically own is lost, and you'll never own anything again. Then the psalmist mentions those things that you do that receive praise from others. Never again will you hear the praise of others. For all eternity, you will never hear a single soul saying, I'm proud of you. But you'll never know marriage, intimacy, children. The psalm says you'll never see light again so that the joy of a sunrise, the warm glow of the late afternoon sun, the the beauty of nature and art is gone. You'll not know the joy of going for a walk, the the joy of a swim, the pleasure of entertainment. All things you now enjoy are removed. Hell is the loss of not just some things. It's the loss of all things. Second, hell is the extinguishment of hope. I take this to be the case because hell continues for an endless duration. Consider just as a way of contemplating this, the use of the term everlasting. Mark 9, 48, Jesus speaks of it as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is here referring to the image of Gehenna, a place of garbage located in the Valley of Hinnom. You know, this valley was in ancient times a place where child sacrifice had occurred and was considered a place that was perpetually unclean. There, Jews would throw their refuse, and in that place, burning never stopped, but there, even there, the larvae and other creatures continue to live. In other words, life and fire just keeps going. Listen now to what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 8. There he calls hell the eternal fire. In Matthew 25, verse 46, he calls it eternal punishment. In Jude 6, Jude describes it as the place of eternal chains. In Jude 7, eternal fire. In Jude 13, the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it is called the lake of fire and sulfur, where the inhabitant of hell is tormented day and night forever and ever. Without even speaking of the eternity of torments, let's just focus on the matter of eternity. You know, in my own life, when I'm going through a particularly difficult time, I'm often reminded of hope. You know, this present difficulty will not go on forever. God will rescue me, and and even if I die, I remind myself of the glory of heaven yet to be revealed, that my best days are ever before me. Hope is essential to our well-being. We know that among people who commit suicide, once hope is lost, then suicide becomes almost inevitable. Among all human needs, hope is the most essential. It is that candle that will continue to shine in the darkest of nights. We can go through failure after failure, have struggle after struggles, but while there is hope, we can go on. The greatest goals in our lives are of no value if there is no hope in attaining them. You know, when men and women are assigned to hell, their spirits must utterly cry out in despair, for there, in that awful place, all hope is removed. When you're in hell, things won't get better ever. When you're in hell, there is no dreaming of a better day. When you're in hell, the human spirit can't grasp at the slightest ray of light, for there will never be even the slightest glint of light or of hope. 
So we've said that hell is a place of the loss of all things. And second, that is the place where hope is eclipsed. Third, hell is the place where those who enter suffer the everlasting displeasure of God. I know, I know, there are those today who will say that they don't look to God today, so where's the loss in this? I mean, they don't pray, they don't, they don't care if God's pleased with them or not. But think of the matter in context. All manner of people pray when they're in trouble. You know, it's been said that, that prayer might be banned from our public schools, but it, but it can't be banned at exam times. When facing a sudden reversal of fortune, perhaps a serious disease or the wreck of a marriage or the loss of all the finances we have, how many people who have never prayed will suddenly begin to attempt a bargain with God? But hell, as we've seen, is the expression of the eternal displeasure of God, often called his wrath. Consider the contrast. Every day, every human being, while they're still alive, is the recipient of the kindness of God by the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food that comes from the earth to the functioning of our bodies. And so we experience the kindness of God in hundreds of ways, even though many simply do not acknowledge it. In hell, all trace of God's kindness is removed. In its place is God's displeasure. Rather than the gift of physical life and its many pleasures are the cursings of physical life and its many pains. Isaiah 33 verse 14 says, The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Indeed, the presence of God in giving blessings to all men is removed in hell. In its place is the presence of God, which is an everlasting burning. It is suffering under his displeasure for all eternity. There's a horrifying thought in hell, that here on earth, it's a pleasurable thought. See, on earth, the presence of God sustains us and gives us life every day. Our eyes perceive beauty, our hearts experience love, our hands touch warmth and suggest care. But in hell, the presence of God also sustains men and women, but but in hell, it's a curse to be sustained by God. They would wish to die, but God's hands will continue to sustain them, only to continually exist under his displeasure. Suddenly in hell, the existence and presence of God will be the most horrible thing. Two thousand and seventeen has been an incredible year of ministry. New ministries were launched. Truth and Life Today, a weekly video program with Dr. Newfeld, responding to your questions of life and faith. In doubt, our young adult ministry began nationwide Facebook Live Bible study events. Back to the Bible Kids launched three mobile games, helping kids to grow in their understanding of God, the Bible, and to memorize Scripture. These are a few of the 2017 initiatives connecting the Bible with people of all ages and backgrounds across Canada. December is a critical month financially for all of our ministries. This month alone, our goal is to raise $400,000. You know, it's a big number. But shared among all those who value these ministries, including the daily program with Dr. John Newfeld, we can make it happen. Call us today with your year-end gift at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. I've sometimes been asked why I believe in hell. My first response is always, I believe in hell because my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ believed in hell. And he taught on the matter frequently. 
but I also believe in hell because the very nature of God, his supremacy over all things, is the very definition of good and evil, that it is an infinite evil to turn one's back against God. But I've noticed that my salvation means so much more to me when I discover what it is that I have been redeemed from. And so I find that hell, as horrible as the matter is, demands I face it and come to terms with the awful nature of it. But still, there's an emotional response to hell, though the, the response that one hears in many places. It's the charge that if we believe in hell, we, we believe in a God who is a torturer. I mean, how can God be filled with joy when at every moment in eternity are the poor damned souls of hell whose suffering never ends and whose misery continues at the present moment? Is this matter even vaguely conceivable? To that now, in a way of concluding the subject matter, we give our attention. So let's notice at least three things. First, that from reading the biblical material, there seem to be degrees of punishment in hell. Furthermore, from this, we must assume that the punishment given to each person in hell is uniquely designed for them. This tells us that hell is not a blunt instrument of torture, but rather it is the expression of God's perfect and infinite justice. Let's look at Luke 12, verse 47 to 48. This is Jesus speaking. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. See, in essence, what we have here is is Jesus warning to the people who lived in the cities where he had preached the good news of the kingdom and where he had done his miracles. The greater the crime against his kingdom, the greater will be the punishment. I mean, listen to Jesus' words to Capernaum, his hometown, where he had done so many miracles. I'm reading Matthew 11, 23 to 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And notice the phrase, more tolerable. Are we to believe that hell will be more tolerable for some than for others? Evidently, that's exactly what Jesus taught. Jesus was frequently heard to remark, great will be your reward in heaven. And Jesus taught varying degrees of reward in heaven. And he also taught of degrees of punishment in hell. And so let's get back to the emotional response to hell that would accuse God of being a torturer. And so let's describe a torturer. Perhaps images of the Middle Ages come to mind in which an inquisitor has his hapless victim strapped to a rack and which hot tongs are used to tear out chunks of flesh to the horrid cries of the victim. Is this an adequate picture of hell? Well, no, it's not. You know, first, would you notice that the picture of the torturer is a picture of attempting to get the victim to say something before he's put to death? Perhaps the person being tortured is supposed to give away his associates, or perhaps he's supposed to renounce his religious beliefs, or perhaps it is merely a matter of a vendetta. But in every case, the torture is happening apart from proper trial. It's it's happening apart from proper rules of law, and the torture is happening to get the victim to say something. None of that's true about hell. 
According to the Bible, hell follows the most precise, objective, and righteous trial in human history. According to Revelation 20, verse 12, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. To put that into terms that we can easily grasp, after the final resurrection, each human being appears before God in which every single action and thought and intent and failure to act, each millisecond of an entire life lived will be examined with the utmost of detail. When God pronounces his sentence, it will include the exact conditions of hell, conditions that strictly correspond to the crimes done against his kingdom and against his great name. Hell is not the crude club of a torturer. It is the exacting justice of the one who does all things well. But still, someone might argue, I'm not satisfied. If it is as the Bible describes it, that sin is an infinite evil against an infinite good and righteous God, and therefore deserving of an infinite punishment. Well, fine, but still, the idea of endless punishment is overwhelmingly abhorrent. And here at this criticism, a criticism that one often hears, I need to push back strongly. The problem that so many of us have with hell is actually our problem with God. See, if we're truthful, Many of us can't conceive of a God who is infinitely worthy of all praise, adoration, and worship. I know. We mouth these words, but in truth, we actually hate them. For us, it is we human beings who are ultimately worthy of praise, our happiness, rather than the praises of him who is of inestimable worth, is what we actually believe. In truth, the scandal of the doctrine of hell has exposed the reality that many of so-called evangelicals in our day are in fact exposed as offended by the doctrine of God. That God would be glorified in expressing his justice on the unrighteous is more than some of us can bear. I mean, after all, we reason in our heart, who does God think he is? And to that we answer, actually, God thinks he's God. And to that we come full circle. I began today's message by recounting that which has become the popular way of describing hell. That hell is the place where human beings choose to go and that God tries to prevent us, but he's a gentleman and allows us to have our own way. And given that this picture is entirely incongruous with the Bible, let me now add one more problem with this picture. Too many of us believe that we're in control of our relationship with God. We can choose him at our will, but we can choose against him at our will. And he's subject to our will, and we're not subject to his will. In essence, we're the gods, and he's the servant. And so while we're alive, we think that things between God and us are in our hands. God is then seen as not the prime mover, but the eternal responder, who's limited in his actions by our first move. See, that's the image of the woman making a decision as to whether she wants to respond to her potential lover. But listen to the words of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you notice Paul's choice of words? Dead in trespasses and sins. I know this about dead men and women. 
Dead men and women don't rise from the dead on their own by their own will. They're not in charge of their relationship with life or with anything else. They're dead. You can plead with dead men to rise, but they're unresponsive. Indeed, they're incapable of responding. Paul made that clear in Romans 2.11 where he said, No one seeks God. Now, in Ephesians 2, after having described our condition before our conversion, Paul then describes our conversion. Instead of allowing us to say, you know, I had the sense to see matters clearly, Paul interrupts this. He will not allow us to take credit for our salvation, even the slightest bit. Instead, when we read verses 4 and 5, Paul will say, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. See, our conversion, says Paul, is a resurrection from the dead. And so if today you're hearing the voice of Christ calling you to repent from your sins and to flee the destruction that's coming upon the whole world, if today you would but surrender your life into the hands of Christ, who loved you and and died for your sins, then if that's you, know this. It was the grace of God that made you alive to him. He gave you the ability to respond. You did not choose him. He chose you. Be glad he and he only was in charge of your relationship with him. Surrender your life into his hands and receive the gift of eternal life and joy in his presence. The great wonder of the doctrine of hell is that God, being rich in mercy, has sent his Son to spare us from that which we rightfully deserve, and he has given us that which we surely don't deserve, salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. And if you've never committed your life to Christ, do so today and receive a gift that you will never regret. John, thanks for these messages this week. I know it hasn't been an easy series to do for you, but is there some concluding remarks you'd like to make? Yeah, I think, uh, Ben, you maybe have put your finger on it just simply by by prefacing your, your question in the way that you have. I find this a very difficult subject uh, simply because I am overwhelmed with what it actually speaks of. I do know that Jesus mentioned it. I think that we must because it's in the Bible, so we need to be faithful to what the Bible actually teaches. But I think that whenever we speak about hell, we have to have a tear in our eyes and an aching in our heart, and we need to come before the Lord in in, in reverence and ask, O Lord, that you would have mercy on many. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month only, order Dr. Neufeld's new and biblically revealing series entitled Hell Explained. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld unpacks the often difficult and uncomfortable doctrine of hell. His study will discuss the biblical description of hell, how we reconcile hell with the God of the Bible, and the importance for Christians to understand the seriousness of hell. Hell Explained will be aired the last week of November, so listen on air, online, through our mobile app or audio mail, but we're also making it available on CD for the feature price of only $8, including shipping and taxes. So order your copy today. And if this type of Bible teaching is important to you, please consider becoming a financial partner with a donation today or become a monthly partner. 
Call us to order or to give a gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.